0: Well, good morning everybody. Good to be here with you. That was enthusiastic. I like it. This is our last morning. It's our last day of our series called Myths About God and Faith. And uh, I just want to, before we jump into today's topic, just want to uh, let you know that anytime we go through a series like this where we're really dealing with really commonly held beliefs about God, beliefs about faith, and some of them are are difficult to fully grasp or understand. But I want to encourage you and let you know that if you still have questions and doubts and there's still some tension there, that I want to encourage you with that and just let you know that God wants to walk with you and accept you in that tension. And don't use that and the lack of, of finality on every answer to be a reason to walk away from the faith. Uh, one of the things that just really discourages me is the amount of people who m- maybe grew up believing and then ran into some problematic some questions that they didn't quite have answers for and they instead of leaning in just said well then I can't believe in God or because of maybe culturally our culture has changed to the point where we don't like to accept everything that we see in scripture that that becomes another reason to say well it doesn't fit with me anymore so I don't want to believe I want to encourage you, even in that tension, even in those things you say, I don't really like this part of the faith, or I'm not really clear on these answers, that even in that, just keep leaning in, keep journeying, and know that with your doubts, your questions, that God's big enough to handle that, and he wants to keep journeying with you. Um, And in fact, I want to invite you tonight, the evening service, after the message tonight, we're going to have an open-ended Q&A, mostly addressing any of these. So if you have questions you want to have answered, we'll have a text-in option of tonight if you want to dive deeper as well as we're setting up another teaching opportunity uh, outside of a Sunday morning where we can go a little bit deeper on some of these. But I want to encourage you, if you have lingering doubts and questions, that's not a reason to say, well, I don't believe in God anymore because there's some tension. That's, we all have it. We all have it until we uh, find the final answer when we meet God in eternity, uh, we will have some. So glad to have you here with us. Uh, Before we jump into this, let's just pray to start off our time. God, I thank you again for today, and I thank you that uh, you are big enough to handle our questions. You're big enough to handle our doubts. And Lord, even the things uh, that we believe about you that we're wrong about, God, forgive us for that, but help continue to open our eyes. Lord, the things that we believe about you that are uncomfortable, help us to uh, still learn more about you and love you in that, and to see that it's actually your goodness, and it's for our good. And so, God, I just pray that you would move in this place and let us step aside so this can be about you and not what we prefer, but who you are. So we thank you and give you this time now. Amen. As I was uh, preparing this week uh, uh, for today's subject, which is kind of an intense one, uh, I, I started studying, I came across a story about uh, this mother and her daughter, and her daughter was getting married to someone who she totally loved this guy, and she was talking to her mom and saying, Mom, I love, I love everything about him. He's so great. The only thing that's frustrating about him is that he doesn't believe in heaven and hell. And, and her mom said, well, honey, here's the thing, just, you know, you're going to marry him, so marry him, and I want you just to show him unconditional love, and, and shower him with your grace, and show him what forgiveness looks like, and compassion, and love, and, and you will give him a glimpse, and he will see what heaven is like through your life, and he will learn to believe in heaven, and she thought, hey mom, that sounds like great advice, thank you so much. And then the future mother-in-law looked at her and said, now as for hell, I'll make sure he knows what hell will be like. So, <laughs> I also want to take this time to welcome in all the in-laws who are visiting this week uh, for Thanksgiving. It's great to have you with our family. <laughs> the, the subject that we're looking at this week is the myth that says this life is all there is. It's common belief out there, and actually, increasingly, year after year, more and more people believe that this world we live is all there is. We live our lives, we die, we're done. And that what you believe doesn't really matter, how you live doesn't really matter, because when we're done, we're done. In fact, the renowned physicist Stephen Stephen Hawking, when he was speaking of his death, said, I don't care about when I die, it doesn't matter, and he said, because... The fact of the matter is, and he said, the truth is there is no afterlife. I know that for a fact. It's interesting that anyone could be so bold as to say they know for a fact that anything happens after life. But he is convinced. He has the facts that he didn't share with anyone else, but he has the facts. There is no afterlife. But the problem is, when we talk about this, is the truth is we don't have anyone who, we don't have eyewitness accounts. Sure, there's been experiences that some people have had here and there and, and you hear about them where they say maybe that they had a, where they died and had some experience, but for the most part, we don't have any, you know, anyone who said, I was there, I died, this is how I experienced it, this is what it looks like, how it's going to be. What we do have is a history uh, of, in our faith, and, in, and uh, of scripture that's describing But even as we read the descriptions of life after this one, we read it through a veil of sin that clouds our judgment. And so we can't fully understand, but we do have hints to why it makes sense to believe that this life is not all there is. In fact, almost every single culture from the beginning of time has wondered and pondered about what happens after they die. In fact, most cultures have come to the conclusion that there is something supernatural about our existence, and that there must be something more. Every culture in every corner of the globe has come to that conclusion for the most part. And so today what we want to explore is that, is this life all there is? And we're going to look at the fact that we believe the truth is this, that we believe that God will raise the dead. And what we mean by that is that this physical world, once it's over, there's something else. And so that God will raise the dead and, then we'll, and we all will face a final judgment. Now isn't that a happy thought to start off our holiday season? Isn't that great? I, I've got to confess, this is not the type of sermon that I look forward to preaching. This is not my favorite one, but it's important that we understand what God Uh, speaks about these things. So let's jump into these, and I'm going to go pretty quickly at the beginning, and then when we get to the subjects of heaven and hell specifically, we're going to double-click and go a little bit deeper on those. But first of all, what does Scripture tell us about eternal life? Does the Bible talk about a life after this one? And the fact of the matter is, yes, it does. In fact, the Bible begins in the book of Genesis, In chapter three, it describes the the original, called the Garden of Eden, which in Hebrew now is, is known as synonymous with paradise or a picture of heaven. It's symbolic of heaven. And so in that picture, in Genesis chapter three, we have mankind walking with God in the garden, and there's no separation between man and God. There's perfect relationship there. There's perfect relationship between mankind. There's nothing clouding it, and there's nothing ruining that relationship. There's also perfect relationship between mankind and creation, the rest of God's creation. So all is at peace. The Hebrew word is shalom. It's also related to the Hebrew word shalem, which means completeness. It is as it was meant to be. Now scripture begins with this picture to help us understand that this is the picture of what eternity with God is supposed to look like. The tree of life is in the Garden of Eden, symbolic of eternal life. Now, when sin enters in, We have the rest of the biblical story is God's way of of relating with mankind as mankind continues to rebel against God through our acts, time after time, day after day, some moment after moment, and how God is providing a way to redeem and restore us. And we have in the end of our Bibles, in the book of Revelation, it ends in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 with a picture of heaven, Garden of Eden restored. And, and it, it goes back to the beginning. There's a tree of life that gives us eternal life, and it's symbolic of eternal life with God. There's no separation between God and man. There's no, separ- no separation between mankind and mankind and creation. So the Bible begins and ends with a picture of paradise and eternal life. So we know that it speaks about it. Now, in, throughout Scripture, we find in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, things like in Psalm chapter 139, verse 24, we have David praying, and he says, lead me in the ways of everlasting or of eternal life. Teach me how, what eternal life looks like. In the New Testament, we find it, it taught quite often. Jesus, in John chapter 10, I have this on the screen for you, verses 28 and 29, Jesus is speaking about his disciples, his followers, and he says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's, been given, who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So Jesus is saying, those who are my people, my followers, who've received me, accepted me, made me their Lord, that I, they are with me and they can't for eternal life, and they, that will not be taken away. So we have in the Old Testament and in the New. Now I do want to say, in the Old Testament, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, they don't speak about eternal life as often. Some people use that to say that, well, then that shows that they didn't believe in it. But actually, one of the truth, the truth is they don't speak about it that often is because it was very well assumed. There was no question for those growing up or living in that time that there was an eternal existence. That was in the ancient world that was quite accepted. So let's talk about the next phase of this. So there is an eternal life. Now, are there different places where people go? We call it heaven and hell today. This is how we know of it. But do the scriptures speak about that? Again, we have uh, hints of it in the Old Testament and the Hebrew scriptures speaks about, they often called the realm of the dead, uh, which is generally referred to as a place uh, separated from God. We have that in uh, Psalm chapter nine. Um, Proverbs chapter 15 verse 24 actually says, the path of the righteous leads upwards and avoiding the the realm of the dead or they don't go down with the wicked to the realm of the dead. So uh, the Hebrew word is sheol, which kind of means the underworld, death, but it generally refers to those who are separated from God. In the New Testament, again, there's a contrast between life, eternal life with God, and eternal life or, or uh, apart from God, that the Greek word is Hades. Uh, maybe you hear that word, it's kind of more f- common to us today. Again, talking about the underworld, the realm of the dead, but it, again, it's separated from God in that case. J- Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, Jesus is speaking, and he says this, "'Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide "'and the way is broad, that leads to destruction.'" And this is that idea of apart from God. It's leading to the pit or the realm of the dead. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and very few find it. So Jesus is indicating that there are different destinations at the end. So again, throughout scripture we see there's a contrast. Now, let's dive in a little deeper and talk about heaven specifically. We're gonna double click on heaven a little and look into that. And, and then we'll end with the uplifting topic and talk about hell to end our time here. But let's first talk about heaven. When we talk about heaven, before I even get into these, let me just give a little uh, suggestion for all of us. A- and that is, let's never base our theology or what we believe about heaven and hell about what feels right to us in the 21st century Western American world. Okay, just because it doesn't fit with our sensibilities and because people will tell you, well, that's not fair, I don't like that. Let's not say, okay, well, I guess that's how God is then. Because that would mean that God is changing and blowing in the wind and the truth about God changes from decade to decade, person to person, culture to culture. And if it's truth, it's truth. And so let's not believe things based on what feels right or what seems fair to us. In fact, I would say, when we talk uh, about hell, one of the most common things that people say is, I don't believe in God because it's, hell is not fair. And I would say, I, I get it. I mean, I totally get that. But heaven is incredibly unfair, too. It is incredibly unfair, that people who know about God, that we can rebel against him and even those of us who believe in him have our moments where we don't trust him for who he is and when we take parts of our faith and say, this is mine, God. You have yours, but I get mine. And we are pretty selfish people oftentimes. We're not always godly people. And yet he says, because of my grace, because of what my son Jesus has done for you, you can have eternal life. Let me tell you, in the Western world, that is unfair. That makes no sense. We don't have to make up for any of our sins because Jesus did. That doesn't work either, culturally. But we're, we're quick to blame God, but we're also, we're not quick to say, well, yeah, I guess heaven's unfair too, but it's good. So let's not base what we believe on what feels right. But let me just tell you, if you experience that tension, I'm with you. <laughs> Because it is not easy. It's not easy. But let's talk about heaven because that's fun. So let me start off. And, and, and a lot of times people think of heaven like this. I think Gary Larson, the Far Side ca- Cartoons, is, is good at kind of showing general depictions. So sometimes we think of heaven and we have this view, right? And we think, oh, I'm going to have this white robe and I'm going to have a harp and I'm going to have wings. I'll be sitting on the clouds. And then like after a thousand years, you're looking around going, yeah, I don't know. Now what? I wish I brought a magazine. I've already binge watched everything on Netflix that was, you know, rated G. And I already you know, went through all, of, and, and now I have nothing left to do. And I think a lot of times people think that heaven is a bit like that. And in fact, for me, I think, when I uh, first became a Christian and people were telling me like, oh, heaven is, you have like all eternity, it's like a long, eternal long worship service to God. And I remember being you know, a high schooler and a new Christian thinking like, Every Sunday morning felt like eternity to me, every worship service. <laughs> Is it really going to be like that forever? Are you kidding me? That's a long time. You know, and, and, and I used to, I, I remember looking at like how many stands, you know, how many hymns are they going to sing or how many verses of this one? And I'd look down like, oh, they're doing three today. Okay, I can endure three more. You know, and so, so when someone said, for all eternity, you can worship God, I thought, ooh, that, that's a long, that's a long time. But then I thought, well, I do believe we'll be worshiping God, but we automatically think worship is a singing, and, and maybe we will be singing for all eternity, but that even isn't super appealing to me. But here's the thing, that heaven is not us becoming angels, giving a harp, floating on the clouds. You don't become an angel. God already has angels. He made angels already. He has them. But we have new spiritual lives, new bodies, and a new home with a new existence. But we are in the presence of God. So let's look at what it might look like and why it's something we would want to have. I want to invite you to look in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. It's good to look in Revelation because it's the last book of the Bible. Easy to find. So you can find it. Chapter 21, verse 1 through 4 says this. This is a vision of heaven, and it says, Then I saw the new heaven and the new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Now, this starts off, and the, the, what's happening here in this story is, God is saying, I am making all things new. And I'm taking the current, and when he says heavens and earth, he's essentially saying, I'm making a whole brand new existence, and this earth, he's making it new, all things new. It's being renewed and restored, and when it says there's no longer any sea, Not necessarily saying there isn't any water, but the sea in the ancient world was a place uh, where the abyss was and where evil things come from. It was a scary place. So in this new heaven, new earth, he's saying even the, the thing that is producing that which brings fear in the abyss, that doesn't exist. All things are new. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he dwelled among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. So here's the picture, and this, again, this is going to be an incomplete picture of heaven that we'll give you today. We don't have it fully. But there's some sort of restored, renewed, new heavens and new earth. Could it be an existence of the earth that looks very much like the one we have today? Maybe. The picture in the Garden uh, Garden of Eden again, it's this beautiful paradise where the presence of God is there. And even this description here is the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, is is here on the new earth. Now, again, don't get too caught up in thinking like, well, I wonder what country it's in or where it is. God's erasing all that and making it all new. But it makes sense that if this is a good and beautiful creation, that there may be elements of this that we even have here today. And here's a good question. A lot of people ask, are there animals in heaven? We have in scripture that talks about the lion will lay down with the lamb, symbolic of peace and the ultimate peace of God. In the Garden of Eden, there were animals. I would assume then that maybe in the new heavens and new earth, there are animals. There's not cats, but there are dogs. So they're in... (laughs) Come on. Come on, you know it. <laughs> there's no way cats are fully redeemed. Look at those things. <laughs> They're great when you feed them. Okay, so let's go. Uh, <laughs> but so you have the picture of heaven as this place is, everything is restored and there's perfect peace again between man and God, man and mankind, and man and creation. But look at the key. God was dwelling among his people. The separation is gone. Let me tell you, those of us who, if we even have a high view of God and, and, and you feel like you know him pretty well, let me tell you, make you a promise. Your conception of God falls short. And we are gonna be blown away when there's no more sin or veil separating and clouding our judgment. I, I imagine when we dwell in the presence of God, all of a sudden we're gonna look and say, wait, you are the one we've been praying to? You were listening to me? This is what we get, and we're going to be so blown away at how much better, how much other than God is, how much more holy he is, how much his justice is better than we could think of, his compassion is greater than we could imagine. Every concept you have of God falls short of how it actually is. But we will be in his presence, dwelling among him. When I think of eternity and I think of worship, and again, will that be musical worship? I imagine there'll be musical worship going on, but worship isn't just singing. So we'll be worshiping God because we'll see him in his fullness. In eternity, time no longer matters. We learn in scripture that a day is like a thousand years to God and a thousand years is like a day. In other words, he's outside of time. When I think of eternity, I think of it this way. When my kids were a lot younger, they used to love just playing games. And when you have little kids, they can play the same game all day long. It, I mean, you, we build a fort, and it's the, we play the monster game, and they run by, and you grab their legs and pull them in and kind of beat them up and tickle them. And they're like, that is awesome, Dad. Let's keep playing. And it's like two hours go by, and they still think it's fun. And you're under the blankets, like sweating, thinking like, oh, why are these kids not falling asleep? What's going on? And I actually miss those days, so if you're in them, enjoy them now. Enjoy them now. But to a kid, if they're fed and they have rest, <laughs> time disappears when they're with the ones who love them. When, they're in, when they have all their needs met and they're in the presence of great love, they can play a game forever And time. They don't even say like, wow, Dad, we've been playing this an hour. I've got some things to do. He said, do it again. Do it again. Let's keep going. I think in eternity, when all of our needs are fully met, like they never have been. And we're in the presence of our Creator and we experience a love that you have never experienced. So much greater that we're not going to think like, wow, it's been a while. It's been like a thousand years. How much longer are we doing this? No. I say, do it again, Dad. Do it again do it again. It's what we're made for. It's what our souls are created to connect with God the Father. So he dwells among his people. Look at verse four. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no longer any death. There'll be no mourning, no crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Sometimes there's this concept that I used to hear about that when we get to heaven, we're going to have to give an account for everything we ever did. Now, we may have to, but could you imagine if you had to give an account for everything you ever did, would you have p- tears and pain and crying? What would that be like if God said, hey, how about that show you watched? What about when you were hanging out with that person and you lied to them? What about, what about this time you stole something? Is that no tears or, or, or wiping away all pain? Here's the thing. If you do have to give an account of everything, let me just tell you, if you get to heaven before me, this is my advice. Here's how you do it. God says, here's the file. Give an account for this. You say, I couldn't possibly. But here's your son, Jesus. You told me that he'd be enough because I couldn't possibly give an account. But the good news is that you don't have to because Jesus already did. And when we get that, That is the fullness of the good news. And I think we don't understand the good news until we are in the presence of God and we understand how much we actually fell short and how much Jesus' sacrifice for you and for me actually means. And then we'll go, oh, this good news is so much better than I ever imagined. The broken world will be made new. Everything that is broken will be restored. And all of this pain and suffering is gone. That's the picture that we have in heaven. And I don't know physically what it's going to look like. I don't know what we're going to have to do there. But I kind of don't think it's going to matter when we're in the presence of the one who created us and our souls for the first time fully experience the way we were meant, meant to be. So, now let's look at the next one. Let's look at the one no one wants to talk about. I don't like talking about it. Let's talk about the concept of hell. What is this in scripture? Again, Gary Larson, I think, paints a picture of what we sometimes think of that might be in hell. Is we have this concept here. Okay, funny only to me. Great. So, (laughs) but we often have this belief Two of us think it's funny. I like it. We have this belief that in hell, it's this place that Satan and his minions, they have a palace and there's fires burning everywhere and they run it and it's a place where they get to torment people. Like God says, here's some people. Hey, why don't you guys have fun with them and torment them for the rest of eternity? Go for it. And it seems like if you're Satan or one of the demons, like, that sounds like they're having fun. That's often what we believe about hell. We know according to Jesus, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, he actually says that hell was designed and prepared for Satan and his demons. It is not their palace. It is a place where God is punishing Satan and their demons. They have no interest in being there. It is not a palace. It is not their playground. Jesus said it's designed for them to be tormented to be punished. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9, it's Paul's writing, he actually says hell is a place where we are utterly separated from the presence of God. Whereas in heaven there's no longer any separation, here on earth we're partially separated. Sin is what separates us, but we can have access to God's presence, but in in hell we're taught that you are all the way separated. I worked, was working with a student one day and he told me, he goes, Ryan, I don't believe in God. I don't really care about your God. So I don't care if I'm separated from him in eternity. It's like, what does that matter to me? In fact, that's good. I can't wait. And I just said, you know what? Right now, that sounds okay to you, but your soul was made to connect with God. And the life you're experiencing now, whether you know it or not, you're experiencing his presence. Not fully, but it's the thing we call common grace. If you reject God or accept him when you live on this earth we're experiencing the common grace of God when you're separated completely from him even those who don't who think you've been rejecting him your whole life you're going to experience an isolation that's never existed before I want to invite you to look at your Bibles in the book of Luke chapter 16 it's a parable that Jesus tells and I want to just tell you let's not read every little detail of it of this is an exact description but Jesus is speaking about eternal life and by the way, Jesus spoke about heaven and hell more than any other figure throughout scripture. He, he taught about it quite often. And he tells this parable in Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19, and it's about what happens in the afterlife. And he says, there was a rich man who habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And there was a poor man named Lazarus who was laid at his gate covered with sores and he was longing to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. What Jesus is painting a picture of is one of these people was fully living for himself, who was enjoying life the way he wanted to, but it was all apart from God. That's the context of the parable. And the other one was this poor person named Lazarus who was a beggar, but he had some sort of spiritual life with God, which is implied here. Uh, Verse 22, now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now what is that? That's just a Hebraic way of saying a place of comfort. It was to be with Father Abraham. So it's not like a special or unique place. It's talking about eternal life uh, with God, and it's a place of comfort. And the rich man died, and he was buried. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes Being in torment, and he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. In other words, essentially saying, One is in this concept of hell, one is in this concept of heaven. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Now, really quickly, uh, Scripture does use flames and fire as a symbolic of hell, but I don't necessarily think there's literal flames, because throughout Scripture, fire is intended to be a symbol of, of cleansing and of judgment. And if we have new spiritual bodies, physical fire, as you and I know it, wouldn't, it doesn't really matter. But that's the way to describe it in a way that they understand. He says, I'm in agony of these flames. Now send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water and cool my tongue. Which is another Hebraic way of saying, uh, when you cleanse your lips or cleanse your mouth, it was a way of, out of the overflow of your heart, comes out of your mouth. So it was a way of saying, cleanse me. But notice even here what the rich man was doing. He still was self-centered. He was still in his own life saying, Have that beggar come and serve me. Tell him to come. Give me a drink. He wasn't getting it. As we go on, Abraham says, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus received bad things. But now he's being comforted here and you are in agony. Now this is not saying that if you're rich that you're going to hell and if you're poor you're going to heaven. (laughs) It's not that. This is talking about spiritual lives. But notice the first thing we learn about hell. Is that this was a choice that the rich man made. He knew about Abraham. He knew about Moses and the prophets. But he rejected them. He said, I want my life, my way, now. And the response was, you already got what's coming to you. You already got the good things. In fact, in hell, the description is this. The world we live in now is as good as it will ever be for you. Can you imagine if the world we have now is as good as it gets? I mean, I just turn on the news for like 20 minutes and I think, that, to me, that's hell. If you made me watch that for eternity and watch how people get al- don't get along with each other, that's like, is this as good as life gets? But here he says, Lazarus, you already got it's not getting any better. You got, not Lazarus, rich man. You already received. It's as good as it gets for you on life on earth. That's over. In fact, those in heaven, the life on earth is as bad as it ever will be. The contrast is strong. So he says, you've already received what you wanted. You got it. And besides all this, verse 26, between us and you, there's a great chasm that's fixed so that you who wi- those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able to, and that none may cross over from there to us. So we also learn that in hell there is a fixed chasm. Unfortunately, this means that there's this belief out there called universalism that says that one day God will save everybody, even those who are in hell. And that doesn't seem to be what Jesus believes. I wish it were true, to be honest with you. I wish universalism was true. But that doesn't seem to be what Jesus believes. Now, someone asked me, do you think there's any possibility that God will surprise us with his grace and and save people who also were condemned to hell? And I would say it is possible because God is so much bigger possible, everything than, than what I can imagine, but it's not supported in scripture. It's possible But I can't have a, it's just, it's what I want to be true, but it's just what I want and what most of us would want, but it doesn't seem to be true according to Jesus. So the chasm is fixed. Look at the next thing, and he says, Then I beg you, Father, to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Here's the next thing we see. It's lonely in hell. The concept, and I've had people say like, oh, I don't care if I go to hell, I'm going to be there with all my friends and Ozzy Osbourne, we're going to party. Woo, it's going to be great. We can't wait. According to Jesus, there's no one with you. If you had friends in hell, this guy would say, well, at least my brothers are coming soon. But he says, no, I don't don't send them here. I don't want them to be isolated to you. I don't want them to experience what I'm experiencing. It's lonely. And Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear from them. But the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. That'll convince them. Jesus said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't even be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Interesting coming from Jesus, isn't it? What we find is that this is not a place that any of us would possibly want to be in. Utter separation. Now, a few questions, and again, I'm not going to be able to, to fully answer. I just want to throw some thoughts out there for you, and, and we'll point you to some other resources. But it does seem, and I don't have time to get into it, so we're going to find another time to do deeper teaching. There is some indication, according to Jesus in his parables, that there's different degrees punishment in hell. Now, any punishment, any separation from God and the way you're created is, trust me, it's not like you say like, well, that hurts, but that really hurts. It's not good. But Jesus does say that it's things like it'll be more tolerable for these cities in Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it will be for a city like Chorazin. And so he's saying like some are going to experience more judgment. Uh, Jesus has a parable in uh, Luke chapter 12, that talks about some, uh, because of their knowledge, they have greater knowledge, so their punishment will be greater. Now, I, I, how that works, I can't even, I don't even really be able to tell you, and I'm not saying like, say like, well, then I'm a pretty good person, I'm only going to a little bit of hell. Like, it's not, that's not what you want, the way we want to look at that, because you're still separated from the God who made you. There's one other belief out there that uh, is, has some evidence, but it certainly isn't enough for us to base our whole theology on, and we don't, but there's a, a belief called annihilism that says that there's a period uh, where people are in hell, but there's, in Revelation chapter 20, you have a thing called the second death where everyone will be thrown into the lake of fire, and there's some people who would argue that that, that argues for annihilation, that there is not an eternal punishment, but even in that, that's shaky, and Jesus does talk about eternal separation from God, eternal destruction what we do know is that apart from christ apart from the the gift of life that god gives to us that we can't have what our souls were made to have and that's be in the presence of god and it's not a place we want to be now one other thing some of you will ask well what about someone who doesn't know the name of jesus what about them we talked about this a few weeks ago so i won't get into it but God is gracious, he is just, he knows how this works better than you and I work. And it seems to me that he will hold people responsible for what they know. And there will be people who I assume won't, didn't know the name of Jesus, that he saved them because we learn in Romans chapter 1 that all are without excuse, that creation itself reveals the attributes of God. We know that even someone like Abraham, has. Faith was credited to him as righteousness. So God saw the faith that he had. It wasn't specific in Jesus because he didn't know Jesus. But he had a, specific, he had a general faith in God. I don't know how that works. And, I, and, and for us in this room, we're responsible for what we do know. So we want to be people who are on our knees praying for our friends and our family, begging to God for our kids, That they would know Jesus, that he would give them the life that only he can give them, to raise them to new life in Christ. And we want to be a church that cares about that. We care about the people we interact with. And gone are the days when we're going to stand on the corner and try to scare people into heaven. But we do want to love people into heaven. We want them to see the grace and love of God, but we don't want to shy away from, hey, the reason we care is because we want you to have eternal life in Christ. But we don't want to be people for us in here. I don't want you to walk around in fear. I don't want you to walk in fear of death, fear of what happens. And we can have full confidence when we know Jesus. We can have full confidence when we trust that what he did was enough. And so we want to be people who fully believe and trust in God's goodness. Know that He is more just than you and I, that He is more fair than any human could come up with. And He is better and what good, He has more goodness than any of us could ever imagine. And let God work out the details and other people's lives, but let's be people of prayer, let's be people who bring the message of Jesus, let's be the people of love, but let's not shy away from thinking it doesn't matter, because it matters, it matters. I want to end with a verse for you, and then we're just going to sing one short course. The verse is in the book of Jude, which I'm sure many of you were reading this morning as you woke up. But in the book of Jude, verses 24 and 25, I have it on the screen for you, says this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. That's a picture of heaven. Nothing that you have done, nothing that you will do, none of your thoughts will matter when Jesus stands in your place, he is able to let you stand there blameless with great joy to the only God and Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forevermore. I want to invite you just to stand with me as we pray and end our time. Lord God, I thank you so much for this time. Lord, we still have questions, but we need your grace. I thank you that you are a God of grace and love. I thank you that you provide a way for us, and we beg for our friends and our families and coworkers and people that don't yet know you. Would you reach out to their lives, stir their spirits, God, and draw them into relationship with you? We know that you tell us in your word that you desire that no one will perish, but all will experience eternal life. You don't take pleasure in your creation suffering. You don't take pleasure in being separated from those you love. So God, we beg of you to move in the lives of so many who don't yet know you. And Lord, move in this place here. So we remember how good you are to us and how good you want to be to all. We need you, Lord, so we give you this time.